With all their profound and striking statements, Job's friends were unable to discover his real problem. And as we've heard before, his friends didn't understand God, they didn't understand Job, and they didn't even understand themselves. On this edition of Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth, we'll be in the 11th chapter of Job and we'll be introduced to the last of Job's three friends, Zophar, the legalist. So go ahead and find your place in Job 11 and we'll begin now with a word of prayer. Please bow your heart with me. Lord, we thank you that you remove people from darkness and into your marvelous light. We pray that this message would bring light to those who need it. Please bless our time of study now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, my friend, we come to the 11th chapter of the book of Job today, and we have seen the visit that Job's friends made to him in the middle of his grief and sorrow. And now we come to the last one of those friends. His name is Zophar. And Zophar is a legalist. He assumes, and rightly so actually, that God works according to measure, to law. He pretends to know what God will do in a given circumstance. He's different from Bildad. Bildad is a traditionalist. He tried to go back and look at what happened in the past, and he has a scientific mind that would look at rocks and try to tell you how old the earth is. And he would think that he knows quite a few things because he does know just some things. Now, Zophar has a scientific mind also, but he puts the emphasis on the laws of God, on the fact that God works according to law and number. Or better still, if we bring Zophar up to date, he would be more or less an agnostic. He would assume that the universe is following certain laws. He doesn't bother to tell us who made the laws or where this universe came from, but that, there are, that, that we are in a universe that follows laws. But by the way, you can't have a law without somebody making the law. But nevertheless, they assume that this physical universe is following certain laws. And Zophar is one of these fellows who knows all the answers. Now, Zophar's first discourse here is the voice of legalism. He holds here that God is bound by laws and that he never operates beyond the circumference of his own laws. And I think Zophar is probably the oldest one of the group. He speaks with dogmatic finality, and he is very candid and crude, even more than Bildad. Now, Zophar is going to step in here to interrogate Job, verse 1 of chapter 11 of Job. Then Zophar the Namathite answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered, and a talkative man be acquitted? These men come up with some very stinging statements. Some of them you may wish you had thought of yourself. They have a way with words here. Now, shall a multitude of words go unanswered? What he's saying is simply this, that Job is covering up his sin with words. Job has tried to uh, make clear that a man in his condition who is suffering like he is, well, he's not apt to put up a front. But this man so far ignores that. And he says, shall a multitude of words go unanswered and a talkative man be acquitted? He says, Job, you're trying to talk your way out of the situation. Now, there are some men that do that. They're able to talk their way out of a situation, able by a clever manipulation of words. 
And you know that that's the way some lawyers win cases in court, just the cleverness of the lawyer and not justice being done at all. Now this man goes even a step further. He said that Job has earned a rebuke because he was still claiming that his sin had not caused his problem. And evidently Zophar feels like he's the righteous one who should issue Job's rebuke. Listen to him, verse 3. Shall your boasts silence men, and shall you scoff and none rebuke? In other words, he's accusing Job of being a liar. Not only a hypocrite, now he accuses him of being a liar. And that's more crude than Bildad was. Bildad, you remember, called him a hypocrite, but he never called him a liar. Now verse 4. For you have said, My teaching is pure, and I am innocent in your eyes. Now this man, Zophar, is going to take the position of an insider. He's going to attempt to make us believe that he is more or less on the inside. That is, he has a very pious position and he knows what God will do under certain circumstances. Job's on the outside. He's not an insider, and therefore he's not able to know. And for that reason, Zophar believes that God should listen to him because he has the final word. And that word is God's word, he believes. But the truth is, Zophar really doesn't have a message for Job. And Job is going to make it clear that he has no message for him at all. Listen to Zophar as he goes on here, verse 5. But would that God might speak and open his lips against you. And of, of course, in Zophar's mind, if God did speak, he'd say exactly what Zophar was saying. But since God's not speaking, then, well, Zophar should speak for him, he thinks. Now notice verse 6, And show you the secrets of wisdom, for sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. Now that, may I say, was not a very comforting thing to say to this man Job at this time. And in fact, this is a very harsh blow. He's saying, Job, you're not even getting half of what you had coming to you. Because actually, your suffering just shows that you're much worse than we ever imagined you were. And you're really getting what's coming to you. That's not very helpful to a man in Job's condition. And you must remember, at this time, Job, we've said it before, we'll say it again, he is a very sick man. He is in desperate pain at this time. And he actually thinks that he might pass away at any moment. One moment he hopes he will, but we'll see another moment He's not so anxious to die. Now, Zophar continues here. He says, verse 7, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? And may I say, that's a great statement. But as Job will tell him, who doesn't know this? It's a marvelous statement. No man can discover God. The very interesting thing is we need to recognize what a profound statement this is. You see, God never had a Christopher Columbus. Nobody ever discovered him. God is revealed, my friend. The only way that you can know about God is from what he is pleased to reveal of himself. And I've come to the conclusion that he's revealed very little of himself to us, actually. And in fact, the little that he has revealed has some of us so awestruck and others among us so confused you can see why he didn't reveal any more. But you will never find out about God by starting out like Columbus did, 
nor will you be able to put up a satellite or a Hubble telescope out in space and find him. In fact, in 1957, after Sputnik, the world's first satellite was put in orbit by the Russians, some newspapers over there discovered that they hadn't, uh, they published that they hadn't discovered God. And I guess they were expecting to find him out there. Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? May I say to you, you can put those little gadgets out in space, but they're not going to find God. That's absurd. And man today can pour anything into a test tube or put anything under a microscope or gaze out through a telescope, but he's not going to be able to discover God. That is not the way. God must reveal himself to man. This is a profound statement from Zophar, but Job's going to tell him, who doesn't know this? Now notice verse 8. They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And this is a tremendous discourse that he's giving here. But once again, it's not touching the need of Job at all. And Job will show that in just a moment. Now he says, verse 10, If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? For he knows false men, and he sees iniquity without investigating. An idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. Now, of course, he's speaking of Job and not himself here. He himself feels like he has the answers. Verse 13, If you would direct your heart right and spread out your hand to him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. All of Job's three friends assume that Job was covering up. And that, of course, was not it at all. They didn't understand God. And they didn't understand Job, and they didn't understand themselves. And that put them in a rather awkward position because they were not able to offer any help to Job at all. Now he says here, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. And Job, you see, wouldn't know just what it was that he was supposed to put away. But there was something, as we shall see. Now, Zophar, as well as these other friends of Job, they do make true statements. Zophar was right that the life of faith in God is based on repentance and obedience. And he was right that God blessed his people with hope and security and peace. But just like these other men, he was wrong in not understanding that sometimes God permits seemingly unfair suffering for reasons that we just can't understand. God is sovereign. And God is unpredictable. And this man, Zophar, was wrong in suggesting that Job's problem was the result of some awful sin. Now, verse 15. Then indeed you could lift up your face without moral defect, and you would be steadfast and not fear. Zophar says, Job, if you just deal with the sin that's in your life and you quit hiding it, then you would be heard. And God would hear your prayer and he would heal you and restore you. Verse 16, For you would forget your trouble, as waters have passed by, you would remember it. Your life would be brighter than noonday, darkness would be like the morning. Then you would trust, because there is hope, and you would look around and rest securely. You would lie down, and none would disturb you, and many would entreat your favor. And then Zophar concludes his discourse in verse 20, But the eyes of the wicked will fail, and there will, no escape, there will be no escape for them. 
and their hope is to breathe their last. In other words, he's saying to Job, unless you confess your secret sin, he predicts that there will be absolute and complete judgment of Job. And that concludes Zophar's answer. And now all these three friends now have had their say, and they've actually each made their attack. So now Job is going to answer Zophar, and this will conclude round one. And this here is probably the lengthiest speech that we have, and then we'll have round two. Remember, this is like a football game to people in that day. Back then, people enjoyed intellectual competitions. That is, men pitting their minds against one another. Today it's brawn, not brain. But there's a crowd gathered around, and after Job gives his answer, then the second round will begin. Now let's listen to Job here, because we're now going to be able to draw some conclusions, which I hope will be of great benefit to us, because that's the purpose of this discourse, and the purpose of this book being in the Word of God. God has a message here for us. Now let's look here as we begin Job chapter 12, and I'm reading verse 1. Then Job responded, Truly then, you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. Now that's a sarcastic statement, my friend. And it's a pretty good one, I must say. Job says, Well, you fellows act like you have all the answers. Verse 2. Truly then, you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. But, he says, But I have intelligence as well as you. I'm not inferior to you, and who does not know such things as these? They're acting like Job is a simpleton, and they just have all the answers. But these men have not spoken into the situation as it really is. And as we go along in the discourses, we'll notice this. And at this point, I'd like to call your attention to it so that you can watch for it. Because here is something, my friend, that is important for us today. In place of leading Job to self-judgment, they only ministered to a spirit of self-vindication. In other words, they make an attack upon Job, and he comes back and defends himself. And as a result, they actually did not really introduce God into the scene. They mention God, but they do not speak of a God of mercy and of grace, but only a God of law. And he is a God of law, but he's also a God of grace and mercy as well. And they said some true things, but they didn't give Job the truth. They brought in experience and tradition and legality, but they didn't bring in the truth, you see? Now, what's happening is just simply this. When they made their indictment of this man Job, it caused Job to defend himself. Job is saying that he's right. And the minute that Job says he's right, we'll come to this later on, but that by justifying himself, he's no longer justifying God, you see? And up to this point, it looks as if Job has actually been saying that God is wrong. And God is the one to be criticized. And that's the position that a lot of people take today, even a lot of church members. Now, these friends should have led Job to condemn himself and to vindicate God. And that is something very important. We'll see more of that because that is going to be the backbone of all of this. All of these utterances here show how far Job was from that true brokenness of spirit 
and humility of mind which always flows from being in the divine presence. His friends never got him into that place where he could say, as Paul said in Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. There are too many Christians today who boast about who they are or what they've done or what they give. Sometimes they even mask it as, Wow, we've baptized so many people and our attendance has grown by so many and so many people are going to small groups and we've opened so many new campuses. Golly gee, isn't our church great? God is really doing something here with our church. We're really building the kingdom. But all they're truly talking about is what they've done, you see? It seems as though God is the one on the receiving end, not on the giving side. And it looks as if they are superior. And God is not superior. My friend, may I say to you that you and I are not witnessing correctly for God. And I don't care how many people you invited to church last week or how many people you stopped at the grocery store and told them about Jesus. You and I are not truly witnessing until we take the place where we are condemned and God is vindicated. God is to be praised and God is to be honored. Now, this is tremendous here in this book. Now, let's move on in chapter 12. Job is a very sick man and he's in a weakened and painful condition. But I tell you, he's standing up to these men now. He says in verse 4 now, I am a joke to my friends, the one who called on God and he answered him. The just and blameless man is a joke. He who is at ease holds calamity and contempt as prepared for those whose feet slip. In other words, he's saying, you fellows are in a comfortable position. And you're able to give me advice, but I'm slipping. I'm falling. And you have no word for me at all. Verse 6, the tents of the destroyers prosper and those who provoke God are secure, whom God brings into their power. Job is now refuting their notion that the righteous always prosper and the wicked always suffer. It doesn't always work out that way. And Job reminds them of that. He says, hey, God allows thieves and sinners to be prosperous and secure. So why not believe that he may also allow the righteous to suffer? Verse 7, but now ask the beasts and let them teach you and the birds of the heavens and let them tell you. Or speak to the earth and let it teach you, and let fish of the sea declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Job now shows that he's also got a scientific mind. He points them to nature. He says, hey, don't forget about survival of the fittest. Job tells them to look at the animals and the birds and the earth and the fish. And Job's illustrations are intended here to show that the violent prosper and live securely. And in some cases, God made it so that the most vicious survive. Now, Job continues on here. Verse 11, does not the ear test words as the palate tastes its food? Wisdom is with aged men, with long life is understanding. 
Now again, Job is being sarcastic. Wisdom is with aged men. He says, in other words, shouldn't you guys have some more wisdom and understand me better? Since you're so aged and you've lived such long lives with so much experience. And Job is chiding them a little bit here, but he's not wrong. He's, he's correct in this. His friends have only heard and spoken what they wanted to, whatever was good for their palate. And now Job speaks about the power of God, and he gives a vivid definition of the wisdom and power and sovereignty of God in this section here, verse 13. With him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. Behold, he tears down and it cannot be rebuilt. He imprisons a man and there can be no release. Behold, he restrains the waters and they dry up. And he sends them out and they inundate the earth. With him are strength and sound wisdom. And the misled and the misleader belong to him. He makes counselors walk barefoot. He makes fools of judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their loins with a girdle. He makes priests walk barefoot and overthrows the secure ones. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on nobles and loosens the belt of the strong. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into light. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. He deprives, the, he deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Now, here in, chap in chapter 13, he says, Behold, my eye has seen all this, my ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know, I am not inferior to you. Now, you see, Job, he gives all of this, this discourse in the 12th chapter, to show these men that he knows the same stuff they know. They have not told him anything new. They've not been helpful to him at all. And now he comes to the very crux of the matter. He says, verse 3, But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. Job says, I want to talk to God. I want a chance to reason over my case with God. If someone had only been there right now to tell him about the grace and the mercy of God and how God wanted to help him. Verse 4, but you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. In other words, Job is saying, you have not diagnosed my case. Now, if you were giving me treatment, let's say, let's say I have diabetes, and I was having trouble because my body couldn't produce the right amount of insulin. Then you come in and say, I have a solution, Mr. Schultz. We can do surgery and take your lungs out. Well, that's not going to help. You've missed the whole point. And these friends of Job have been missing the point entirely. Now, we'll have to leave it there for this time, but we'll pick it right back up in verse 5 next time. So until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. See you later.